I, I like I love I love working with the Bentley guys. They're they're incredible. They're actually quite inspiring to see how hard they still work, um, and it's great insight into why they are and have so many successful restaurants. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The evolution of the culinary landscape has been extraordinary, but sometimes that evolution has seen the decline in other offerings as the industry changes shape. Great brasseries of the past built an amazing foundation for the current path carvers, but in some ways they got left behind until more recently. Nero Richards is the head chef of Brasserie 1930. Nero, how are you? Very good, thanks, Huck. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You're part of a very exciting new restaurant um, with one of Australia's best groups. How are things going there? Yeah, the game really good. Um, it's been very busy, as as well as it can be. Um, and working alongside Brent Naden's pretty epic. Like I really, you see the success, the way they work. To- Tell us a little bit about uh, Aidan Stevens and Brent Savage. They're, you know, sort of at the helm of the Bentley Group with many venues. What, what, do you have any stories of what it's like working with them? Um, yeah, they're very hands-on. So you're in constant contact with them. I think uh, we've had a few jokes where we speak to – I speak to Aidan probably more than I speak to my wife. Um, and I think that goes the same for all the Bentley head chefs. But um, yeah, they're very hands-on. They're very involved. They're also very, um, very encouraging. So they're quite willing to let you do, like, do you, but within the confines of what they want. Um, if that makes sense. The brasserie looks quite extravagant and um, like stunning fit out and amazing looking food. Tell us about what you're doing there. Um, yeah, it's super luxe inside the Capella Hotel. Um, yeah, it's an Australian brasserie. I mean, that's the way Brent sold it to me when he um, approached me for the for the role. Uh, we're doing sort of whole duck, uh, which are driving in the house, making neck sausage um, out of the legs, stuffing it back in, and then serving it. Yeah, in in a brasserie style, like a large share plate. Lots of dry aged meats to go alongside that. Um, yeah, over everything's cooked over. Iron bark and coal. There's a big wood grill there. So, yeah, it's very exciting. It's very hot. <laughs> what's what's it sort of take to pull together something sort of quite extravagant? Give us a sense of the scale and sort of how many staff are involved to sort of deliver this. I think the hotel itself has about 300. Um, the restaurant sits at about 50, 50 staff. Um, including all the front of house and the chefs. Um, not to mention you get – there's Bentley staff that work in the restaurant as well to, to come through and they do almost every service. There's someone from Bentley there. So the presence is felt, which is really good um, to maintain the standard, right? Um, yeah, I think the project started seven years ago or something like that, when they took over the Sandstone site. But I think Bentley came on board maybe a year and a half, a year and a half ago. I started November last year. The restaurant didn't open until March. So you got five months of preparation. Um, It was still a building site, so you'd walk around with high-vis and a hard hat on 
and it was very hard to imagine a restaurant like what was going to come out of there. You know, you're doing tastings on plates that you bring from your house and stuff like that, or you go over to Bentley and do a tasting out of their kitchen there. Um, but it was really good. It, it, there's a lot of systems within the hotel and within Bentley that I hadn't thought about working in small small standalone restaurants prior to that. There were so many things that you didn't think about doing. Like uh, I've never written an SOP in my life before, but now I've written maybe 50. Um like how to how to sharpen a steel, <laughs> like, um, yeah, a lot of procedure. Uh, how important are those sort of procedures for what you guys are doing? Um, I mean, I guess they are vital in in a sense. It's like writing a recipe, but um, I wouldn't say that the be all and end all personally. But um, yeah, I mean, they have to be done. Um, so you, so you can train your staff properly, I suppose. How did you get the role for the brasserie? Um, so I've had a lot of friends who have worked for Bentley over the years. Um, actually, the reason I moved here was one of my friends was working at Yellow. But, um, yeah, Brent's sort of been in and out. You know, we've we've met each other at, at restaurants or, or out, out drinking, I suppose. Not that he drinks a lot, but um, my wife ended up being their head pastry chef in 2019. 2018, 2019. So I think 2019, I was at LPs and um, they said after that, like, I went in for a chat. I don't know, maybe 2021, just after I left Mamafuku. Um, at the time, there was nothing that I was really interested in. But he called me up mid last year and was like, hey, I've got something that you might be suited for. Um, and he told me the story and yeah, the rest is history. I want to explore what you're doing there sort of in detail, but take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play for you growing up? Um, oh, massive. Mum and dad are such good cooks. Um, so my mum and dad are from Sri Lanka. Uh, so, yeah, dinner was always rice and curry to an extent, which uh, if you grow up in New Zealand and you go over to your friend's house, that's not what they're having. But, uh, yeah, it was really good. They would take turns. Um, making dinner every day dad really loves shellfish so he would make either a prawn curry or a crab curry were like his two specialties and uh and mum will do all the like the chicken lamb and beef curries always with rice and then some form of overcooked vegetables so the other components were delicious the vegetables they varied in quality but uh yeah it was really interesting um and then every family event was a feast of everything Everything that I liked. Now, as an adult, that as a child, I didn't. You know, took it for granted, I think, as a child. Tell us about sort of those feasts. Is there one in particular that you could tell us about and the sort of food that was sort of involved in it? Yeah, so there's a dish called uh, kotoroti, which, is, which would be my final meal if I got to choose one. I'd get my dad to make it. Um, it's not actually that laborious, but it's just, it's delicious and it goes far. So kotho means cut, basically means cut roti. So you make a, a flat bread or a, fr- a flat roti, a form of curry, sauteed cabbage, and you chop it all together and mix it. It's just like it's the Sri Lankan fried rice. Um, but big platters of that. And then you have, everyone has hoppers. Everyone knows what a hopper is. Um, and then you have hoppers with a prawn curry for me. And then 
I actually really like the dessert ones. So it's like just sweet coconut milk on the bottom. Um, but just those three things everywhere. Every meal you go, you'll get that. Did this sort of um, rich sort of uh, heritage within the family of and love for cooking, did that rub off on you early? Were you in the kitchen a lot cooking? And um, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah. I um, Actually, what got me into it was I, I watched The Naked Chef on TV, um, Jamie Oliver. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, wow, that's actually really cool. This is what mum and dad do every day. Um, and then I asked mum if I could start helping out with dinner. So I was probably around eight or nine, I think, and I got allocated uh, like one meal a week. So I think it started off with Saturday lunch was the uh, meal I got allocated. And I think the first one I did was like grilled spaghetti on toast or something, you know, like thin spaghetti with cheese on toast or something like that. Um, and it was probably that for about three weeks in a row until my dad kind of was like, no, nah, we're not having this. Um and then it became a Thursday dinner was the other day that I got given. Uh, first meal was chili con carne, <laughs> but out of a packet. Uh, but that slowly progressed into my sister actually being like, hey, we should try and make something nice. So she bought me a Jamie Oliver cookbook as I was still obsessed with them. And uh, we tried different things out of there. I think the first one we did was uh, a tagine out of there. But never really tried any of the Sri Lankan things until I got a bit older. <laughs> when did you um, sort of first get an inkling that you wanted to uh, have a career as a chef and where did it begin? Um, I, th- I think from that is when I think I just started telling everybody I wanted to be a chef. Um, from about the age of 12, I think, I just told everybody that's what I was going to do. And I almost didn't try at anything else. <laughs> Um, like I had other hobbies like music and sport, etc. But no, everyone, all my teachers, it was like, I oh, know I want to be a chef. I don't want to go be an accountant or a lawyer or whatever. Um, I started my apprenticeship when I was 17. So I left school early, started the apprenticeship at Sky City in Auckland uh, and finished that up in uh, 2021. No, 2021, 2011. Tell us about your time at, at Sky City. What, what was it like and, and what did you take from it? Um, well, it was, it was my first role ever in a kitchen. Until then, I'd only worked um, at, a, at a video easy. It was my first ever job. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was a huge shock. Like um, There was still a lot of the old school mentality where you just got caned every day for everything. Um, which I was not used to, especially coming out of school where you're not treated that way. Um, but I took a lot from it. Every 10 weeks, you'd move to a different outlet within the casino. Um, so you did sort of the you know, main kitchen production. We made 300 litres of stock every day. So you were, roasting, you were roasting bones for, I don't know, two hours straight, and that was the apprentice's job before they went home was to roast the bones and put the stock on. Um, <laughs> So that was good until one day I decided, by accident, just, you know, you forget what aromats to put in. I threw two whole handfuls of star anise into the beef stock. Uh, and got, got into quite a lot of trouble the next day for that. But, um, yeah, there were heaps of different restaurants. There was uh, Peter Gordon had a re- had two restaurants there. One was called Dine. One was called Bayota. So you cycled through both of those as well. Um, yeah, just everything from, like, a, a busy restaurant in the top of the Sky Tower that does – 400 people a night um 
yeah, everything was there, and I, I definitely took a lot from it because it was not all just one style. Um, a lot of the restaurants were fast-paced, so you had to be faster. You fell behind, and uh, I was definitely slow for my first year. I remember a lot of the head chefs telling me that I was too slow and needed to speed up, and then, um, yeah, so and now I almost pride myself on trying to be fast. <laughs> yeah. Early on in your career, you um, got a gig at um, French Cafe, which was Australia, uh, New Zealand's best restaurant uh, at a period of time. How did you get that gig? Yeah, when I was in the second year of my apprenticeship, the uh, Peter Gordon used to do a fundraiser called Dining for a Difference, and he would invite chefs from pretty much all over the world to come and cook. I think he did a table of 30 per chef, and each chef got paired up with an apprentice. Uh, that year Simon came and they asked me, um, who would I want to get paired up with? I can't remember. I think Christine Mansfield was there that year. She was doing the dessert course. Um, yeah, I can't can't remember who else had come over that particular year, but I was like, Simon Wright, best chef in New Zealand. Well, in my opinion at the time. Uh, so I want to get partnered up with him. Uh, and my executive chef of the hotel was like, you sure he's a bit of a taskmaster? I was like, no, like it's fine. Like I'll, that's, that's who I want to go work for. So partnered up with him and, uh, I spent the entire event just finding equipment and polishing his plates. So, but, um, yeah, like, you know, he gave me one of each dish to try. Um, I didn't get to do any plating or any of the cooking, which is fine. I totally understand it now. Um, but I kept his number and when I finished my apprenticeship, I contacted him. One of my friends was his pastry chef, and I ended up working there. It was um, awarded three hats, which was the only restaurant at the time in New Zealand to have it. What was it like in that kitchen? Do you have any stories of what it was like? Oh, it was by far and away the hardest place I've ever worked. Um, every day, everything was made from scratch. You, The ordering was so super tight that even if you were trying to, you know, pull a blanket over your sous chef's eyes and prep for the next day, he knew. So if you ordered 100 grams extra of this, he's like, you don't normally order that. You don't need that. And then you wouldn't get it. So everything was prepped every day. Um, and everything was super well-timed. So during a service, every section had about five or six timers for every call of the degustation that was away. Um, and it, and it, ran, it ran like clockwork. It was unbelievable. Um, Simon was in there every single day. He would do prep with us. He would do service with us. Um, it was such a well-run kitchen. And then you just learned to be, you, it was, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. It was, it was so hard, but so good. Like I loved working there. Um, and almost the, the three hats, they won the three hats, restaurant of the year, service of the year, wine list of the year. I think they cleared up, cleaned up every single award. Um, the first year cuisine brought the hats to New Zealand and it was just full every day. You didn't even ask what the booking was because it was just full. So you prepped the full amount of everything and then rinse and repeat the next day. Looking back now at your time at the French Cafe, what, what did you take from it, from, from that experience there? Uh, technique, I think, more than anything. Um, because Simon was, you know, he worked with Marco, so he's quite, he was classically trained by probably one of the best, right? And... All the sauces he made were still made that same way. Um, all the purees he made were made that way. 
And his style of cooking was still, it was sort of when uh, Fringlish <laughs> was a thing, you know, the French-English uh, revolution of the early 2000s. Um, yeah, and it was all still like that. I think I took that more than anything because I'm not in contact with a lot of people that work there anymore. Um, you know, we've all parted ways and live in different sides of the world now. So um, in terms of friendships, not, not heaps of them, but a lot of technique. And uh, a lot of drive, it, it opened up my eyes to see what's required to be a good chef. Um, just from the other seniors that worked in the kitchen, I still remember this one guy, Bane, um, who ended up leaving, going to Boudamond. One day he was so in the weeds <laughs> that he, uh, I think he prepped and portioned 40 kilos on John Dory and it took him half an hour. And it was like, the fastest I've ever seen anybody do anything. Like, and I, asked, I remember asking, how do you do that? And he's just like, you just have to. You just have to get it done. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Tell us about the move to Australia. What, what lured you over here and, and what was it like for you? Um, <laughs> almost a bit of arrogance, I think, lured me over here. I, um, among my friends' circle, I was the only one who'd worked – well, now I was the only one who'd worked at a three-hat. So my young, cocky self was like, oh, there's nowhere else to work in New Zealand. I'll go to Australia. And like I said, I had a friend working um, for Bentley Group. He'd worked at Bentley, and we used to talk about it, how uh, you know he'd get caned by Aiden <laughs> for you know, not doing the puree correctly. Um, and so I came over with the intention of we're actually working at Yellow. Um, but for, for whatever reason, I, d I didn't go to yellow and I ended up having a dinner at LPs with that same friend who worked at Bentley. And, um, we both were like, this, this meal's pretty sick. Like I should just come work here. And, uh, I think I spoke to Tanya that night as I was leaving for dinner and I was just like, Are you guys looking for anybody? And then she was like, yeah, here's, here's Luke's number. Just send him a message and uh, I remember getting a call from Luke and he did not sound at all what I thought he was going to sound like. <laughs> you look at him, this heavily tattooed chef and then he's got the sweetest voice. Um, yeah, and I ended up working at LPs for five years. Tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Luke Powell. As, as you mentioned, like incredible chef with an amazing background, former sort of head chef of Tetsuya's as well. What, what, what was it like working with him in the kitchen at LP's? Uh, very humbling. So like I said, I'd come over kind of cocky and it was like, oh, there can't be that much to making sausages. Um, but very soon worked out that was not the case at all. I did, I did go in respecting him a lot as knowing that he'd been such a young chef as the head chef at Tetsuya's. And going there and seeing him and Shannon Debrasini, the way they worked so calmly, so methodically, everything was like perfect. They checked everything. Um, they were like walking encyclopedias as well. Any question I had a, that I had, they had the answer for it. And I just found that amazing. Like the way that they would go in depth into the science of making sausages. <laughs> you know, I, can't, I can't, don't know how many sausages I've made in my life now, a lot. But, yeah, just working with Luke and Shaz, the, the energy in that team was, was amazing. Like, 
I'll, I'll never be able to recreate a team like that. It was it was amazing. Such a good time. LP's quality meets was something quite different for Sydney at its time. And but you worked your way all the way up to head chef. Uh, do you have any stories of what it was like for you and and being in that role? Uh, yeah, like I think Shaz ended up um, like I was the sous chef there, and Shaz was moving on to go to Victor Churchill to run their sort of um, kitchen there. And Luke was was like, hey, do you want to give it a go? Because um, I'd talked about how I was leaving, would leave, because I, I actually assumed Chaz would never leave, to be honest. And um, I did have some things I wanted to try, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do. So I remember taking on the role around the time um, we got the Josper. So we picked up a Josper and kind of moved away a little bit from sort of the the smoked short rib. I don't know if you remember that short rib. But we moved more into um, just getting steaks and portioning them and selling them by weight every day and cooking a lot more things out of the Josper, cooking prawns in there, trying to finish the chicken inside it. Um, it was great. It, um, I don't know. Like I thought, I thought I knew what being a head chef was. And even though you still had the backing of Luke, you know, I still made a lot of mistakes. Um, still was busy trying to be everyone's friend and have everyone like me um, and not necessarily directing things the way they needed to be. Um, but Luke was there to be like, hey, you, you can't be like that. You need to, if you want this thing done that way, you need to make sure it gets done that way. We've had Luke on the show and LPs has had a dramatic change in the way that it operates and, and what it does. Um, in 2019, you decided to, to leave. Tell us about that decision and what your plans were. Um, I didn't really have any plans. Um, you know, we, we'd, um, I'd, I'd always wanted to go to Copenhagen. Like I'd had a bit of an obsession with Relay, the restaurant. And, you know, Luke had spoken about how they're looking at, you know, moving the restaurant in a different direction, going towards a small goods production, less of a restaurant. And I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. I knew that I didn't want to do production of the small goods just because I, while I enjoyed making them in small batches, I didn't really enjoy, there was no service involved. And I think that a lot of the thrill for me was the cooking during service. Um, so we'd spoken about it at length and I was like, look, I'm, I'll, Basically, I'll stay till the end of this year. We'll go through Christmas, and then when you close for the renovation is when I'll finish up. I ended up finishing it about a month before the first closure, and I went over to Copenhagen. And, um, yeah, I still had no plan. Like, there was – I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to open my own restaurant. Had no clue. The end of 2019, New Year's Eve, Luke and Tan had actually booked me into Momofuku, and because um, they knew that I was going to propose, so they booked it in so I could help help hide it from my from my now wife Kate, and um, yeah, proposed to Kate. She said yes, obviously. Of course, she was going to. And on that night, Paul Carmichael, that same night, was like in typical Paul fashion. Hey, what are you doing now? And I was like, I don't know. And then he goes, Do you want a job? And you know, and I was a bit shocked. Because it was my favorite, it was my favorite restaurant in Sydney for sure. Didn't think I had a chance of working there actually. And then um, I was like, "Yeah, can you just give me like two days?" Because I just got engaged. I'll, just, I'll give you, I'll give you a call. And um, yeah, called him back in two days. We went and had a coffee in the park, and 
he offered me the Sue job there. So I actually had lined up a job before going to Copenhagen. So Copenhagen turned into a bit more of a uh, just a dining experience. I worked over there, still worked in the relay group, um, but now it was just with a different intention of sort of enjoying Europe by myself as opposed to going over there, potentially trying to get a job. Did the experience in Copenhagen have effect, an effect on you and um, your views on food? Um, yeah, it did. It was, it was very brief, and I knew that I wanted to go over there and take something from it. I didn't know what that something was, but I was like, I've got to, you know, this is more or less once in a lifetime um, for me, so let's make sure I get something out of it. I went over there, and I was speaking to the guys that actually worked at Beast um, prior to it, and I was like, how do you guys do this fresh cheese every day? Um, like, I want to learn that. And they – only the sous chefs and the head chefs made the cheese every day. No one else was allowed to do it. So they said, hey, look, you can come watch us and stuff, and that's fine. You know, you've probably got the experience to do it. Um, and I would go and watch them, and they'd make the burrata in this 80 degrees boiling water. Like, it was so hot. I couldn't do it. <laughs> like – I might have watched and learnt, like learnt the the theory behind it, but I just I couldn't do it. So I was doing that, and at the same time, there were two chefs working in the butchery there, who had um, contacted me prior to coming over when they found out I was coming to Relay, and they were like, "Oh, like um, we went to LPs a few years ago. It was great. Um, can you come see us?" And I went and spoke to them, Pete and Carol, the two boys there, and I actually ended up working in the butchery there. So they got whole pigs in every Tuesday and broke it down so meticulously, more, more so than we even did at LPs. Um, they'd, they'd break the animals down into you know, a prosciutto, a copper, a belly, and then they would take various different muscles out and use them for their charcuterie that they had in their cave. But every single piece of meat was cut lean. All the sinew was taken off. It was separated out into hard fat, soft fat, lean meat. And then you had another container, which was I, I still think looked disgusting, but it was all the um, the glands, the blood, veins, silver skin. So every all the fascia. So it was all the things that you probably would just throw in the bin. They kept all of that, and they used to confit it down with spices, and uh, it's called chicioli, and you would just spread it on bread and eat it. Um, but it was so it was it was zero waste. You know the bones were used for stock. Um, nothing went to waste, and that so that really solidified me going like we need to, I need to do this somewhere or somehow, or this is how restaurants should operate. You mentioned the conversation with Paul Carmichael and getting the job with Mamafuku not long before the the pandemic hit. What, what was it like being at Mamafuku during that period of time? Um, yeah, it was it was strange because we started. COVID had already started in the world. It hadn't got its, made its way to Australia per se, but, you know, it was it was savaging Italy. Um, actually, when we were in Copenhagen, we were making jokes about Italy and, and how they were getting ruined by it, but it hadn't made its way uh, to, like, the Scandin to Scandinavia. And then I left Copenhagen, came back, started at Momo, and uh, I remember me and Luke Powell having a chat about it, and we were like, nah, it's just another virus, you know, it'll be fine. Um, but working at Momo, Paul actually, um, he got pneumonia a few years ago and it scarred his lungs. So he, 
if, if he got it, um, it would be probably quite bad for him. So he thought he was getting sick, and he ended up taking, I think, two weeks off. Uh, Kylie also got sick and took two weeks off, and I'd just started. I had no idea what was going on. Luckily, the team there was so super solid that it, it was as if I could just kind of be there, and they kind of helped me get through it without the Paul and Kylie being there for that week, and then we ended up closing for the first lockdown. What what did you do when the first lockdown happened? Um, during the first lockdown, I um, like everybody, no one knew what was going on. Um, I, as a New Zealand citizen, wasn't entitled at first to the uh, the government benefits that they were handing out. So I, I me and my, me and my wife were like, "What are we going to do?" Just like everybody else, uh, one of my friends reached out to me, uh, Sean from Colombo Social. I was like, hey, we've got this project we're thinking of starting. Um, you know, do you do you want to be a part of it and just help run it? Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'll, I would have done anything. I was applying for jobs to work at, you know, Woolies and Coles like everybody else um, and actually realizing that a, uh, a chef's qualification doesn't do anything. <laughs> like, you're not qualified to do anything, um, not even work in, like, Coles or Woolies apparently. So um, I ended up going and doing that, and that's what played it forward has turned into, and now it's a huge project. But um, just working out of the Colombo Social Kitchen there, and we would get donations of food and prep, you know, between 400 to 2,000 meals a day, um, pack it up, and it would get sent away to various different places um, for the people that are less fortunate than I was. How did it feel being part of that at that period of time? It was incredible because it made really – I know it made me feel like I wasn't actually as in the shit as I thought I was. You know, there were people there that couldn't even afford this a meal, you know, and I we were not struggling that much. And it really opened my eyes to being like, hey, life is not that bad. Like, you know, you, you can help all these people and that's how you should use your time now instead of frantically worrying about everything that I was worrying about prior to it. Mamafuku took a long time to to reopen, and you were part of that team that reopened. What was that experience life, and was it like was it and was it different to what Mamafuku had been previously? Yeah, um, we closed for four months, I think, for that first lockdown. Um, and I remember getting a call from Paul saying, "Hey, um, you know, we're going to reopen and." whatever it was, three weeks or something, but me and you need to go back into work and start thinking about what we're going to do. Um, so I went back in and he was like, look, we're not going to be able to bring back a lot of the team. Um, so we're going to have to change up the way we do things, um, which was writing basically one menu only. It was 10 courses. Uh, there weren't many front of house staff coming back, which I'd found out. So it, there was going to be the, the chefs quite heavily involved in the service not just the cooking of the food. So we got to, um, yeah, run food, learn how to set a table properly, clear plates, take drink orders. Um, but it was three weeks of me and Paul. Probably wasn't the most productive three weeks, but um, I think the first day we went back in, probably shouldn't, shouldn't say it, we actually just watched basketball for the whole eight hours. Um, <laughs> we just sat down and, and just watched basketball for the whole first day and, and then we talked about food during it but um, the first day was definitely not very productive but um, yeah and then we but we reopened uh, with a I wouldn't say a new concept it was absolutely still a Caribbean restaurant 
But um, yeah, it was a lot different with, uh, it almost felt a bit more fun, I think, than prior to it. Did, did that sort of role where you were clearing tables and running food and having the interaction with the guests, did that have an uh, impact on your perceptions of the restaurant as a whole? Uh, absolutely. I, you know, getting Ki- getting trained by Kylie um, to be a front of house, I don't know what, what I would call myself at the time, front of house attendant or something. Um, but yeah, having... Kylie trained me to do those things was was a real privilege. Um, I actually said that to her last night, but um, yeah, it was it was really eye opening, and I actually really enjoyed the interaction with the with the guests um, more more so than running a pass. You know, running a pass, you're sort of like, hey, hello, how are you? You're talking to people, but actually being able to drop the food off, explain it talk to the guests and then, you know, have a bit of banter as you're clearing their table or as you're resetting them and, you know, you pick up little little habits that people have and it was, it was quite cool. I actually really enjoyed that aspect of it. You mentioned that um, you'd gone to Momofuku for dinner because it was your favourite restaurant in Sydney at the time and Paul, Paul Carmichael and his food tends to have that effect on people. Well, do you have any stories of what it's like to, to work with him? Yeah. Um, I don't know, probably the best best cook or, yeah, best cook I've worked with. Um, he's just so intuitive. So that's one of the things that he always preached was that he just goes off of feel. It's not like he thinks about a dish and then he's like, I want to make a dish that's like this and he makes it. He just cooks something. If it tastes good, then he'll make something else that tastes good and then see if they go together, um, which is a, a much more freestyle way than than what I thought. Like he's very methodical in the way he thinks about things, but the way he cooks was all about feel. And um, maybe that's why his food tasted so delicious is because there wasn't so much thought behind it. He was just going off of what he felt was good and then he made it and pretty much every time it was delicious. So, um, and it, it definitely took a while for me to get used to that because he would say, hey, Nero, I want you to make this thing and he'd give you almost no direction. He would just tell you he wanted you know, something to taste sweet, but you can make whatever you wanted. But he wouldn't give you any other direction than that, and it took me a while to work out. Okay, so he wants me to actually make this thing that he's going to put with another thing that he's made that we might then pair with something else. Um, but, yeah, it was it was very eye-opening, and I could see why the restaurant was so successful because of the way that him and Kylie ran that place. As we all know, the lockdowns continued and Mamafuku had a lot of uh, closures and you reconnected with Shannon Debrasini who had been at LP's Quality Meats. What, what was that experience like? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my wife had actually ended up working at Victor Churchill um, during the first lockdown because um, she knew Shaz through me at LP's and um, she... I think we both the second time round again were like, hey, let's let's see if Chaz has got anything. And just by luck of the draw, he pretty much had had no chefs. So he was like, yeah, absolutely. Come up. I need someone to do the charcuterie and the terrines because um, he couldn't do it all by himself. And um, so me and my wife ended up both working there during that lockdown. But uh, Kate, Kate was, I think, seven months pregnant, I think, at the time. So she was doing sort of one day. Um, and then I would do, you know, the full five, five days, but it was so good. Just reminiscing about LPs of the shares, you know, we'd just be in there making sausages like we used to, um, 
It was more fun. It was just like, it was like hanging out with my mate again. <laughs> what did you learn about sort of the art and craft of charcuterie and terrines during your time there? Um, yeah, I mean, we didn't do so much of it at LPs. So at Victor Churchill, it was more about the technique of like pâtés and the parfaits and seeing, just seeing how much liver you go through um, to make all of those terrines. Um, but it, it was great because it's, it almost has become like a, a cool thing. Like everyone started doing it again. Um, and so to be doing that, I guess, as the trend was rising in, in and around the world again, uh, was quite good. I, I, I hadn't really thought that much about the terrines before. And then seeing the, the process behind it and how many days it does take to make a good one. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, being a head chef at LP's Quality Meats and um, sort of the lessons that you were learning continuously. How different are you now in the head chef role at Brasserie 1930? Um, I, think I'm, I think I'm probably more calm than I was. Uh, maybe that just comes with being older and you have children and your children try your patience so you kind of have more of it. Um, but I've, I think I'm definitely a lot calmer. I'm a lot clearer with what I actually want and how things to be. Um, I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that I've grown and I hope that my team would, would say the same. Um, yeah, I always wanted to be fair, I think. Um, I always wanted to treat everybody the same way, regardless of how I felt about them, um, whether I liked you or didn't like you. You're always going to get treated the same way. And I think Luke was very good at that where, um, you know, he was the same with every single person. You know, just being kind, I think, was quite important and it is quite important now, but at the same time being firm. Well, you're part of a, an incredible restaurant in a group that continues to deliver the most extraordinary restaurants. What, what do you love about what you do? I love the cooking. Um, I, You know, I know that at some stage my body's going to fail me. <laughs> you know, as, as you get older, and I'm not going to be able to do it the same way I once did. I even found, find that now when uh, if I'm cleaning something, I'm like, oh, my back's quite sore. Um, but, I, I like, I love I love working with the Bentley guys. They're, they're incredible. They're actually quite inspiring to see how hard they still work. Um, and it's great insight into why they are and have so many successful restaurants. Um well, Nero, it's an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Um, best of luck with the brasserie and keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Matt. You too. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs> <laughs>